Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, July 6th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Noah Rothman is out this week. I don't know how we're going to function or how our rhythms are going to are going to function here uh, without Noah, um, who had uh, various concerns that he was expressing over the weekend about many things, but could cannot join us for the podcast about uh, the bug out from Afghanistan and the abandonment of Bagram Air Base, about uh, about Fauci, uh, about all kinds of stuff. So <clears throat> we will endeavor to. Show, you know, soldier on without him, uh, reflecting his, um, his, his, his angers. I, uh, one thing I will say is he wrote a very good blog post. It's on the, it's on, it's at commentarymagazine.com, uh, about, uh, two, two things last week. One was, hey, liberals, if you want to leftist, if you want to surrender <coughs> patriotism to the right, if you actually want to go anti patriotic and, you know, and, 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 and say that all of the, symbols of American greatness are poisoned and terrible, go right ahead. Like we're happy to take them from you just like we did 50 years ago. And then the other was, uh, a, an elaboration of what we talked about on the last podcast, which was this astounding NPR segment, uh, in which, uh, rather than simply reading the declaration of independence, which they have done every 4th of July previous for the last umpteen years, they had to begin by saying that the founders were hypocrites and that we haven't lived up to our ideals and America sucks and everybody should drop dead and whatever it was that they were saying. Um, uh, and, uh, that, 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 that segment has sort of ga- has, uh, like a boulder rolling downhill is, has gained increasingly in controversy over the course of the July 4th weekend, such that people are now, there's now talk in Congress of sponsoring bills to withdraw funding from national public radio, which only makes up one or 2% of national public radio's funding at this point. But um, one of the hilarious things that you might've might seen on Twitter were people saying that national public radio uh, is not, is not actually a public public radio because it's uh, not because the, most of its funding is, uh, you know, privately raised. So uh, this is hypocrisy on the part of the right that something called national public radio is being treated as though it were a public good or public trust or something. And therefore should might, might maybe not, you know, uh, not um, uh, urinate all over the United States, but however you want to put it. Uh, so Noah uh, made both of these points last week and, and they do reflect this the centerpiece of the culture war question that we now face both politically culturally ideologically morally um because people keep saying oh the right wants to make a big deal out of the culture war and crime and all of that and uh there's the there's a gaslighting aspect to this because of course i we didn't pick this fight like this this notion that that you know america is uh you know rotten to its core rotten from the start or something like that is not anything we we pulled out of the ether like his uh abe uh cory bush the uh the the freshman representative or fresh person representative or fresh you know w o m y n representative from um from st louis um she tweeted a kind of astonishing tweet on on Saturday on on the Fourth of July. Yeah, I don't have it in front of me, but I I'll, I'll paraphrase it. It was something to the effect of um, people are celebrating uh, the Fourth of July and they're celebrating freedom, but this was this is just freedom for white people. Um, and it was taken on she, stolen land. You're oh, celebrating right. on stolen land. She that's got both right. of them in there. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Stolen land. Um, yeah. So, and there was that, and I also want to say in, in okay, let me read it. Let me read it. Uh, when they say, when they say that the 4th of July is about American freedom, remember this, the freedom they're referring to is for white people. This land is stolen land and black people still aren't free. You know, what's amazing is this country is so evil that even though, uh, you know, black people are still slaves, amazingly enough, Cory Bush is a elected representative in, in the Congress. Uh, a black woman from Missouri, 
I, I mean, that is, I, I just, you know, it's so genius that, uh, that the founders were so brilliantly hypocritical that they created a system under which unfree people can elect, you know, dozens upon dozens of representatives. Uh, to, I, but yes, I, I think there's even a greater contradiction to what you wrote, because if the United States is founded on stolen land and therefore her point presumably being that it's, it is therefore sort of illegitimate in its very existence. Um, how can you go forward and be a representative in this country? Aren't you, you are, you are, aren't you somehow um, as complicit as anyone else in this evil? Well, it, it is. The, the, this, this drives me crazy because on the progressive left, especially among African-American progressive left spokespeople like Cori Bush, they are absolutely appallingly racist towards black conservatives who do things like, say, apply the Constitution to, you know, uh, legislation on the Supreme Court or criticize things from a from a more conservative perspective rather than a liberal one. You know, they get called Uncle Tom's. They get called terrible, terrible things because they're actually working within the system. But how much more in the system can you be, to Abe's point, than if you're an elected representative of Congress? So if she's, if she's, everything she does is from stolen land, well, when is she convening the commission to return her district to the Native Americans who once lived there? When does she do? It's all posturing, but it's a kind of posturing that I think is incredibly corrosive. The, the other story that came out over the weekend, uh, on this theme was, was one in the New York Times. And I think I, the headline was a fourth of July symbol of unity that may no longer unite. It's a story about the American flag. I mean, how just, just even even positing that, that flying a flag is somehow, you know, threatening or triggering to, to Americans and therefore should be thought through clearly whether you fly it on the 4th of July. That's where we are. And that's that's where the gaslighting comes in, I think, in, in a story like that, because um, the idea is sort of that... Um, the Trumpy right has has politicized the flag, um, but but yes, can I read? Is, yeah, well, I just uh, say, but but in, in in the in the polls that that very piece cites, um, it is it is a it is a, a greater number of Democrats who say they are not proud of the flag than it is uh, uh, Republicans who say they are. So it is not the Trumpy right saying you can't have the flag. It is the it is the left saying we don't want it. We are ashamed right. of it. Yes. This is the pair. These are the two paragraphs that struck me. Um, I actually did shout when I read them and I, uh, I think I frightened my dog, but pol- it says politicians of both parties have long sought to wrap themselves in the flag, but something may be changing today. Flying the flag from the back of a pickup truck or over a lawn is increasingly seen as a clue, albeit an imperfect one to a person's political affiliation in a deeply divided nation. Supporters of former president Donald Trump have embraced the flag so fervently at his rallies across conservative media media, and even during the January 6th assault on the Capitol, that many liberals like Mr. Triber worry that the left has all but ceded the national emblem to the right. It's just made up. They're just making up a narrative in that story to try to describe why a kind of left-leaning guy is a little nervous around the American flag. It's ridiculous. Well, so uh, speaking from my my vantage point, uh, uh, being uh, 60 years old and you guys being uh, somewhat younger. I mean, this is sort of like where I came in. I'm not kidding. Like uh, 50 years ago, uh, 1971, uh, the, I'll give you an example. So 1976 was the bicentennial. People may remember the bicentennial or, you know, or not, but if you don't, there was a national celebration of the 200th anniversary of the signing of the declaration of independence. And at my, uh, ritzy private high school uh there was a simple day uh, school was canceled obviously not in the summer because um because you don't have school in the summer but at some point in the fall uh there was a day-long symposium uh relating to the bicentennial and uh, various people came and spoke at the at the symposium including my 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 parents and uh the theme was America's bicentennial. The American dream has it turned into a nightmare, and the answer, of course, was yes. Uh, and um, that was the conventional view in the 1970s, and it wasn't the conventional view that we had runaway inflation and runaway crime, and you know, cities were getting degraded, and um, 
people felt insecure, it was that America was uh, barbarically evil abroad, you know, had, had, had raped and tortured Indochina, had uh, misbehaved in Cuba, was companies were going around the world bribing things. The FBI was investigating wonderful civil rights organizations like the Black Panthers, all of that stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't what we might think of as, my God, America doesn't seem to be working. Everything is falling apart in the 1970s. It was, uh, the American project is ideologically bad. And we, it, it is eerie to return to those days so completely because of course uh you know the number of people who remember who who understand the redolent echoes of all of this you know i'm i'm about i'm i'm on the youngest side of that right i mean you have to be like around 60 to have a kind of memory of this ideological struggle from the 70s or you'd have to learn it in, you know, in, in history class. And of course no one learns anything in history class anymore. Certainly not that. And, um, and of course, among many other things, it was a colossal political blunder on the part of those who seize this, uh, you know, seize this anti-American flag because they ceded America to people who liked America. And it turned out that more people liked America than didn't like America. And Democrats, you know, with the exception of the weird Carter interregnum, Democrats did not hold the presidency from 1968 until 1992. And the Carter interregnum was weird because, A, Gerald Ford almost won the election in 76, and B, and B Carter ran essentially as a cultural conservative truth-teller, not a liberal, you know, kind of a guy who was so not liberal that he that he apologized for having lust in his heart uh, and stuff like that. Like he was a very culturally conservative presidential candidate and then, and then basically governed as a liberal and, and, and ate his own lunch and was destroyed by it. But, you know, 24 years is a long time again with this one, you know, to, to, to be, th- to be kept out of national it, with these gigantic landslide elections. I mean, remember, uh, Nixon wins by almost 25 points in 72. Carter wins by half a point in 76. Reagan wins by 10 in 80, by 20 in a, uh, by, by 19 in 84. Bush wins by almost nine or eight or something like that in 1988. And Clinton only wins in 1992, largely because Ross Pro gets 19%. Democrats walked themselves into uh, you know, essentially walked, escorted Republicans and neoconservatives into power. So what, what's interesting here is that uh, talking about uh, presidents and, and how they were and how this affects them. So Biden's Fourth of July messaging has is people are saying it's reminiscent of uh, Ronald Reagan's morning in America. Right. He's out there saying. We've we've beaten the we've beaten the the virus. The the vaccine is working. Not no, we have beaten the virus, but we're beating the virus. The vaccine is working. This is this is a celebration uh, not only of American independence, but of getting our um, sort of actual day to day freedoms back. Um, he's they're they're putting out the numbers on on uh, increased uh, black employment, and then you have you know Cory Bush and the New York Times and whomever else sort of you know crapping all over the country at the same time. There's there's an interesting class dynamic, I think, at play now that, that was somewhat different back in the 70s, and that's that more of the people who populate our elite institutions, particularly in the media, but also in academia, and, and to some extent now even in Congress, are people who uh, are uh, of a class who's kids and who themselves did not serve in the military, do not have kids who work as cops or as EMTs or in in jobs that actually place them day to day at risk or that put them in positions where they have to sort of stand up for what the values of their community are in an an actual, you know, skin in the game way, not in a rhetorically on Twitter way. It's not, they they don't perform these values. They live them in in the work that they do. Um, I think that there's, if you look at the elite media it's, you know, highly educated, one could say overeducated. And the argument, if you look at that time story is a perfect example. There are all these little social signals in there. So if you fly your American flag 
on your pickup truck. That was a deliberate choice. Yeah. Uh, they, they're signaling throughout their class signaling. That's that's at, if you know what to look for, it's absolutely uh, appalling. And s- the snobbishness is vast. So there's that in that's working as well. So w- I agree. Joe Biden's message was actually more old fashioned Democrat working class party talk. Um, that's not what the elite of the Democratic Party is now, though. However, I do want to say that the again echoes of the past because the you know the classic uh, confrontation in the United States in the early 1970s was an event in New York called the Hard Hat Riot or came to be called the Hard Hat Riot in which basically a bunch of hippies and student protesters and stuff were set upon by working class guys you know on construction sites who may have had kids in Vietnam or just come back from Vietnam and um and you know they didn't like all this anti-american talk and you know or if they if their if their kids were serving in vietnam they had served in korea or they had served in the second world war they were proud of their service and they didn't like these you know panty waist you know d- d- sloppy overeducated you know w- wimps uh, running down their country and 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 pissing all over their service like that. Now, this is the weird part of where we are now, because, of course, so I'm giving the political, the political argument is the Democrats uh, sort of committed a weird act of self-destruction. It took them more than two decades to recover from, and they only recovered with two right, two presidents who ran to the right, and in Clinton's case and Carter's case, ran to the right, governed sort of on the liberal left, Carter never recovered. Clinton switched gears like crazy to get himself reelected, but didn't retain the presidency for his, because of his personal opinion, was unable to ensure that he was succeeded uh, by a Democrat. And so that was the political account. But of course, the cultural account is of the ever growing accretion of cultural power by the very people that the hard hat riots you know, we're intending to attack. Uh, and that is the, you know, sort of like the sinking of the roots into the academy, the sinking of the roots into government bureaucracies, the the conversion of l- labor unions as they increasingly uh, disappeared from the private sector into public cent- sector interest groups that, you know, that, that, that pushed a sort of radical agenda and all of that. And that is now decades old. It is the roots have gotten ver- two generations old. The roots are very deep. And uh, there was always this corrective in the American culture, which were these people who lived through the Depression. They lived through, they, they lived through the service in the Second World War. They had seen the rise of totalitarianism as a threat to our way of life, Nazism and Stalinism in particular. And they they wanted to defend themselves in the country and and basically the civilization from it, um, and and they did they did have more of a purchase or provenance in the elites than anybody who holds those views or comparable views does does now. That said, uh, you know those roots are 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 corrupted and poisoned, and they're 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 unhealthy, uh, you know, and that whatever their, whatever sustenance they're getting from the soil, uh, you know, we're watching this and, and almost everybody I know, including people who aren't on the right are like, well, this can't go on. This woke stuff can't go on. This cultural radicalism can't go on. Like I'm too old for this. So I don't know. My kids, my kids seem to be okay with it, whatever it is that they want to say. But, um, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I, I get a lot of that now. I mean, it's purely anecdotal, obviously, but but from when I in speaking to liberal friends, who yeah, um, that's what of, I'm talking about. Yeah, too. yeah, they 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 sort of denounce all this now, and I think you know part of it is because we're we're at a point when you take something like Cory Bush's tweet, this is so detached from the arguments that that were being advanced a year ago. You know, it was an argument about police use of force on unarmed black suspects and, and what to do about that and the, the degree to which uh, this was a systemic problem or it wasn't. Um, talking about stolen land and talking about, uh, f- uh, you know, how, how uh, 
black Americans aren't free today is just so disconnected from from what what was actually sort of at stake and what was what was under discussion that there's no it, 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 no one it doesn't resonate I think I mean it does with the with the tiny group that it already resonates with but it's that's that is not going to catch on well, and this is this actually feeds into a, a very useful uh, debate that continues on the right. I think one of the things, actually, to, to Abe's point that Trump stole from conservatives is the ability to have these conversations in a language that doesn't have to involve his kind of crazy populist, you know, Trumpian notions about America first and, and make America great again. There used to be a way to have those conversations among conservatives, and and they did happen quite fruitfully throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Um, he took some of that vocabulary from us. And, and you know, look, if, if you're a Republican who voted for Trump, that's on, that's on every Republican who voted for Trump. But we have to find a way to have these conversations where, he, where that voice is a little bit more marginalized again. And we can talk about the principle behind why parents are, are actually lobbying their school boards and, and lobbying their legislators to stop critical race theory being taught in elementary schools, for example. And on the right, there are productive discussions, debates, disagreements about that already happening, which are, which are good. Um, we all have, uh, you know, our own perspective on it. And, and I think all of us here on the podcast tend to share a, a similar perspective, particularly about some of the overreach with the legislation that Republicans and state legislatures are proposing. But, but that conversation, that kind of self-critical evaluation of these cultural uh, issues is much harder to have if you're on the left now, because right. that's where the cancel culture part right. comes in for them. And that's dangerous because you actually do want both sides kind of having those internal debates at the same time that you're having an overarching discussion of those ideas. I mean, the one thing I'll say is that it's not, I mean, I think the way that Trump has corrupted this conversation is not in highlighting sort of the, the populist nature of the, uh, the anger against uh, you know, sort of leftist anti-Americanism and stuff like that. It's that it's a, uh, that stuff is all a cover for his own cult of personality, which is the thing that is most important to him. Like he doesn't actually care that much about all this. He knows that's a good that point. The people yes. who love him care about it and he's serving them because he wants them to remain his, in his thrall. But, um, you know, there is a, the, the, there is a, a lack of, um, you know, sort of passion, I would say, in the actual defense of the United States. He sort of takes as a given, uh, you know, that, that that the left is bad and it doesn't like America, and so they're bad, you know, and also, but they're only really bad because they're bad to him, you know, it's like that. So the conversation has to take place, or, you know, where, where it can take place most fruitfully is, without reference to how you feel about the indictment of Trump by, 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 by Cyrus Vance Jr. You know, like that's, that's not important anymore. What's important here is a fight for the soul of the country. And as I say, I think politically, ideologically, what, what makes this more telling or more interesting is than maybe it was in the in the early seventies uh, is that um, I, I want to sort of you put all the eggs in the social media basket, but part part of the issue here is that in an odd way, the only voices, the only sort of contrary voices of the sort that 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 Christine you're talking about, that is where commentary emerged as the neoconservative voice because it was an elite voice. But it was the only one making, or it and a couple of other were the only ones making a certain type of argument on America's behalf or on the West's behalf, um, because the the gatekeepers were so strong and so powerful. And now, on the one hand, you have the cultural gatekeepers of elite institutions and the elite bubble are as powerful as they ever were, and they make it impossible for people, you know, I don't know, at a private school to um, to but not to end up as a kind of dissident if they want to say, no, I don't want my kids taught about transgender stuff. Um, but that doesn't, but that's within its own, they're, they're controlling the conversation within its own can and not sort of generally where they seem to have less and less sway. I noticed that uh, Claire Lemon, who runs Quillette, a uh, commentary contributor who lives in Australia, uh, put up a, I was up in the middle of the night because I had insomnia and she put up a tweet, which is 12 hours later, wherever she is, or, you know, it was 
24. I don't even know what the hell time it is in Australia when, when it is, but she said, here's to being uncancelable. And she had sort of like a, like a cosmopolitan or a margarita in her hand. And you know, that's the funny part about this is we're kind of uncancelable because the people who listen to this podcast or who are generous contributors to commentary and who pay attention to listen to us, um, they are not, they, they don't believe in cancellation as a general rule, and they don't want to cancel. It is, it is all within the liberal ambit that this fight, this purification ritual is going on. And they have increasingly less power over people like us. And that, and the us then can extend from us sort of like, you know, anti-Trump people on the right to the Trumpiest people on the right. Um, because they don't, that they don't hold the whip hand over us anymore. Now, maybe they hold the whip hand. If you know, look, I have kids who are going to apply to college and all of that. And there's a whip hand there, depending on what you want to do. And, uh, and that kind of thing. But, but they don't have the, they don't have the ability to silence us, but they can silence each other. There, the, with one caveat, I would say, okay. um, I agree with everything you said. The, the, the thing that concerns me though, isn't, I mean, cause we are in our own way, part of an elite, right? Uh, it, what concerns me is, is how we got to January 6th, for example. And part of that was that it's not just the elite cultural institutions that can now censor and, and control, uh, act as gatekeepers. We have platforms, right? The social, the, the tech platforms that actually are behaving and they are participants in the culture war, even though they claim not to be by what they choose to censor, what they choose to deplatform, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a situation where I think that the, the fleeing to conspiracy theory that we see a lot of people do now, and, and which I think was a, was a big driver in what happened on January 6th, comes from a, a recognition by an average American that, hey, wait a minute, they can, they can take down someone's account. They can, you know, refuse to put up someone's YouTube, someone's YouTube channels canceled. They can demonetize this. They can deplatform that. They can, they can not have stories that a newspaper published about the, uh, presidential candidate son posted. Like there are all these powers that they didn't realize existed. And what drives a conspiracy theory is going, holy crap, they can do that to anyone. Like this idea of being in the midst of uh, being powerless in a, in a world full of very powerful actors. And I think just there's a addition to that. There's another way that um, a a conservative or a moderate um, really conservative can be canceled in a sense, which is that, if you're not um, in media at all, um, you can be canceled sort of at the workplace if you don't right. comport with the new diktats about, uh, you know, the new HR guidelines about race and, and identity and whatever else. Uh, you can be, you know, uh, canceled in your social circles. You can be canceled at your at your university or as a parent of a child at a university, you know. So there, there, are, right. there, there are all the ways that offline um uh in which the, these this the 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 this philosophy has sort of trickled th- throughout american culture and if right. you are just a conservative person going through your day you don't have a platform at all um you you have to sort of play by a bunch of rules or you can be canceled in a way fair enough and i i i i i, I very much accept that that emendation i think we, i w- was talking essentially about the question of how the arguments against wokeness and the cultural revolution and the general political revolution are, are constructed by, by people who, who, who oppose it, who, um, are, are freer of the burdens, uh, of elite gay, gatekeepers than people were say 50 years ago. And I mean, you know, to reflect on, on the story of commentary and my father, as he wrote in his book, ex friends, the cost to him was social, was personal. It was that he became an outcast uh, among in his social circle and 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 lost a lot of friendships. And that is can be unbelievably painful to people. And the fear of that kind of ostracism can make people 
bend their, you know, bend the knee or bend their wills to, to the, to the rage and cultural consensus, except in the ballot box and except when the post, the pollster calls you and asks you what you think and you lie to the pollster because who you have learned how to tell one story in public and to tell the other story in private. One of the reasons that there was this incredible effort on the part of the left to get uh, the Supreme Court to agree to change law so that donations to nonprofits could be made public was in order to create the conditions under which people would be harassed into not giving money to causes that the left didn't agree with, which we saw happen in the case of Proposition 8 in California, the you know, the anti-same-sex marriage proposition and, and you know, uh, um, uh, people's lives were destroyed because they're, you know, because they, they had expressed public support. You know, the Mormon church had expressed public support for something that went along with Mormon doctrine, you know? And so what the left aims to do is to figure out a way to, to, um, uh, you know what, what? What's the word I'm searching for? Harass or or intimidate people into backing off what it is that they think or what it is that they want. Martin Kramer, uh, the eminent uh, American Jewish Israeli historian, posits that uh, the BDS movement um, on college campuses is actually an effort to sideline Jewish academics who might be expressing views contrary to the views in their fields that, you know, radicals really want, that it's not really about divesting. It's about smoking out, either causing people to remain silent out of fear or smoking people out who say, okay, that's it. That's enough. We're done. I'm not, I cannot countenance this at my school, exposing them like in a shooting gallery and then saying, okay, everybody go after them, you know, and this is the, this is the style and manner um, of the moment. And so the changes will have to happen surreptitiously. That is what the, that's why we have about, that's why we have a secret ballot. Right. But that, that, this is a really important point, just broadly speaking in terms of our culture war and how our current, uh, technological regime has changed that because the the ability to live your pri- to have a private life to live it separate from what the state can intervene and on and and do to you and and even what your neighbor can know about what you do as long as you're not breaking the law in your own home by doing something abusive to another human being you should be you should be privacy is something that that uh, from a kind of libertarian perspective we should argue for the the issue today and I think particularly for younger people who I I spend a fair amount of time talking to the compulsion isn't just that you have to have the right beliefs. It's that you have to have an opinion and a belief about everything. You cannot be neutral. So the, the, the privacy comes in, you, the privacy of having one's own views has to be paired with a, a willingness to be like, eh, I don't really have an opinion about that. And that's okay. But now that makes you complicit. If you're progressive, it makes you complicit. If you don't speak out on things that maybe you don't feel you should be speaking out. Well, th- th- this is where the social media stuff has a fan, uh, um, fascinatingly poisonous effect because so everybody lives out loud. Every person has a social media account. So there is some kind of a moral panic about something or other. And it is decided that on this, this such a day, uh, everybody has to have a black Instagram page or a blue Instagram page or a yellow Instagram page. What is the purpose of this? It is to say, if you don't, why don't, you have, why isn't, why didn't you just post a black picture? Are you opposed to police reforms in the wake of George Floyd? Is there, is there something wrong? It's, it's a smoke out. It's a, it's a, it's, it's designed. If we were all more private, if people, yeah, particularly young people were more private, uh, this strategy would not be effective, but sort of everybody, is out there and therefore the ability to intimidate and bully is vastly more, um, what would you call it? It's, I mean, it's vastly easier, uh, to reach and to force it to happen. Uh, I want to, uh, on this point, 
you know, one of the interesting and frightening things about, about critical race theory is that it matters not at all if you, it matters not at all what you think. If you are privately not a racist, that is not good enough. That, that without you taking further action, without you signaling in all sorts of ways, without you confessing, um, to, 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 to doing things that you may or may not have done, um, you are still part of the problem. You, so, so the, the very idea of privacy, which, you know, we're talking about the 4th of July and America, you know, sort of, you know, mind your own business is a, is a sort of quintessential, quintessentially sort of, you know, American, um, uh, uh, sort of political idea in a way. Um, the very idea of privacy, um, sort of must be violated if you are to live in accordance with anti-racism because you have to go out into the world and state and and that you are anti-racist and then show it in certain ways and you can you can't harbor the right thoughts that that is that is in, and and the right and the correct beliefs in your heart and call it a day you have to you you must go out and confess and be public about where you stand that's what they mean by do the work. You have to do the work. Do right. the work is actually a really pernicious phrase. What it means is you have to sh- prove to us that you're doing what we are trying to compel you to do and that you buy into this. And even if it's make-believe, which, look, I have kids in the public school system been force-fed a lot of crazy stuff over the years. They know exactly what to say. And that frightens me more yeah. than, than them actually having yeah. it force-fed to them. Is that, well, by, the oh, way, okay. <laughs> by the way, you're supposed to do the work, but you're also supposed to shut up. Like That's the other thing is this whole thing about how if you want to understand what's happening, you must listen. Mm-hmm. Don't say anything. Listen. Listen to the people who are suffering. Listen, 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 which is just another way of of making it socially acceptable to tell people to shut up if they have if their views don't precisely comport with yours and you 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 intimidate them into silence. It's um it's a it's a it's a very interesting now the question is who's intimidated into silence that that's what i'm talking about it's not that if you're intimidated into silence because like you need to save your job or you need to sort of keep working or something like that so what you do isn't related to critical race so you talk or you say whatever you say you go on and you do your middle management stuff and all of that and then as i say you'll go into the ballot box and you'll be like you know you'll be like this these weird uh, numbers among uh, Hispanics uh, relating to Trump in in weird places in South Florida and on the on the Texas border these numbers that Pew you know that that the that the Pew survey last week exposed that this is a real thing it's very small it's very nascent but the whole point of it is that they are being asked to people are being asked to make public representations about things. Uh, that they can privately um, counter, uh, you know, in the only way that citizens can privately counter anything, which is using the franchise. But there's another way. And actually, because we do a lot of New York Times, appropriate New York Mm -hmm. Times bashing around here, I do want to highlight a a shout out, give a shout out to a piece about a white female farmer in Georgia that was that came out the other day, talking about her reckoning with her family's history of how they got their land, whether they and she found out that they had owned some slaves, um, and her effort to trace the legacy and and actually to think about what she should can and should do now. She's, she doesn't have a lot of money. This isn't really about money, but it is about, okay, I have this land. What's the history here? What's my obligation in the present day to the descendants of the people who I would, I have this land, they don't. And there are reasons for that. And, you know, it it was, it was actually a very nuanced portrait of someone who was doing the work in the right way in her community locally. She was seeking out, she actually went to a group that was talking about a group of African-American leaders in the area who've been discussing this. She went to their meeting and was like, what do I do? You know, please give me some advice. Like I want to learn what to do. And it was a really fascinating portrait of what I think reckoning should look like, which is it's extremely personal. It's extremely localized. It deals with the real people in the real situation who, who had, who are descendants of those who are affected. And this, and in fact, that's the only way to dismantle any kind of systemic situation, right? It's lots of people doing that kind of work at a local level with each other, um, not out of a position of anger or out of a compulsion to declare, you know, whiteness and whatnot. And she just, she discusses actually how poor her 
white community is. And she says, so when we hear people talking about our privilege, it doesn't really ring true. At the same time, she would get a lot of pressure from more racist people in her community who who will look askance at her attempting to do this. So it was a really fascinating, complicated portrait of race in the U.S. right now that actually gave me a lot of optimism. If more people can approach that, the questions in those ways, there is, and they have been doing that, quite frankly, but it's not usually the story you hear, particularly right. from places like the Times. Look, guys, we were talking about what it's like to work in a, you know, in a company and, uh, you know, as a, as an employee in this, in, in, in this atmosphere, let's, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about what it's like to be an employer, uh, and have to deal with all the complex uh, HR issues that employers have to do with. That's why I'm going to talk to you about Bambi. Because look, when running a business, HR issues can kill you, wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and those HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to provide a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit Today, go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E dot com slash commentary spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, all right. So I don't know where to go. What do we do? You guys, what do you want to talk about? Hmm. Um, can I, can I just, I just have to, it, I, cause I was just flattering at the times. Now I have to bash someone who works at the times, Nicole Hannah Jones, after this whole kerfuffle about whether she should get tenure at UNC and she threatened to sue them. And then they voted and they said, we'll give you tenure. She's turned down their offer. So I just yes, think that's yes. kind of a funny coda to the whole, you know, yes. and the faculty came out and said the whole thing was racist. It's terrible. Yeah, it's the all the hand wringing. Cool. Yeah. 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 This was racist. It was racist that somebody, uh, was automatically granted, Tenure and a five-year con. We don't even know how much money they were talking about. Um, let me just uh, let me just stipulate this. I don't care. I don't let her. She can work wherever she wants. Uh, she can do whatever she wants. H- Howard can have her. Um, she's an intellectual disgrace and a Mountie bank and a charlatan. And uh, and you know if uh, and and anybody who my my view is that anybody who gets who who ends up in business with her is going to regret it in the long run. Um, uh, she will take and not give. She will, she will demand and not provide. And she will, uh, at the, at the slightest, without the slightest hesitation, accuse people who are bending over backwards to, to help her and guard her and, and enrich her and reward her of crimes against humanity. Uh, and so good and luck to you, even at Howard, even at Howard or UNC or wherever she might go, you know, after this, or if she leaves the times or whatever, we, we, we still don't even really understand what's going on there. Is she leaving the times? Is she staying at the times and getting tenure at Howard? Is she getting, is she double day? Is she going to take, is have two full-time jobs? I don't even know what she does at the time. She hasn't written anything for the times in, you know, in, in two years, she's just sitting there, on top of the 1619, you know, cash cap project, whatever. I mean, good well, luck I will, you. but I, I, I cite her as an example of a broader thing because a brought up, you know, what a difference it was from a year ago in terms of Corey Bush's tweet and a lot, a lot of money and resources were invested in, in ideas that grew out of the immediate aftermath of George Floyd. Some of which will, will bear good fruit, but a lot of which will ha- be things like, you know, her, playing uh, tenure committees off each other to get more money for herself uh, or Ibram Kendi's, you know, rate anti-racism center in Boston, which as far as I know, has yet to produce a single bit of peer reviewed research about race and probably never will. So you have a lot of, again, this is the posturing and the posturing pays very well for those who know how to, how to seize that moment and, and cash those checks, but it's not really, it's actually doing harmful things for, for 
the cause of uh, reconciliation and, and better race relations in this country because it needs to have the anger and the animosity and the so-called othering, as they say in academia, of, of you know, whiteness and whatnot to thrive, to survive. It's its, it's very reason for existence. So I, I'm following the Kendi Center in particular quite closely because I, I find him uh, probably even more so than Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, a perfect character. I mean, Balzac would have had a heyday writing a novel based around it from Kendi, but I mean, it's a, it's a, we, we, it is always the case at every period, particularly in periods of weird upheaval that these kind of intellectual charlatans rise to the top, become wildly successful, like cap cap catching lightning in a bottle saying the thing that, people think needs to be said to advance the argument. And you know, you look back, I want to go back again to 1971 or back again, 50 years to sort of like Charles Reich, who wrote the greening of America, the theory of which was that the young people of America were creating a revolution that was going to have a thousand year life of self-actualization and liberation and this and blah, 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 blah. And it sold 4 million copies. He was a professor at Yale. He never did anything of any note after that. The book is incomprehensible bilge and was at the time, but, you know, at the time it was, you know, some bizarre version of, you know, the song Aquarius from Hare, written by a professor from Yale. And so, you know, th- there it is. And as I, like every, you know, every generation uh, creates these people. And when people look back, you know, with cooler heads and, you know, after history has had its way with them, uh, you know, you go, oh, gee, oh my God, really? People took that, people took that guy seriously. <laughs> Well, that's okay. So, but that's the point I get. I I have a lot of very well-meaning liberal friends who, you know, they've read every word of Robin DeAngelo and Ibram Kendi and I get in arguments with them and they'll say, well, why do you care? Let just let them write their books, let them do their thing. Like, why do you care? And I was like, well, obviously they're allowed to, they should be allowed and encouraged to do whatever they want as as intellectuals. But I care because people are taking those ideas and uh, and force feeding them to school children or they're taking those ideas and they're putting them into an HR package that requires white men to have have like racially yeah. segregated groups at Boeing yeah. and talk about their privilege. I mean, that's why I care. The application of these ideas is harmful. It's, it's actively harmful. You know, uh, John and I were saying how, you know, we've spoken to liberal friends and, and, uh, or just, uh, people we know who are liberal, who are saying, look, this stuff has gone too far and I'm, I'm liberal, but I don't believe in this. I have to say in my case, um, some of these people are the very same people who, in the wake of uh, the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, and, and Minneapolis blowing up, um, they went out and bought uh, White Fragility uh, and these other books. They were they were you know sort of like encouraged encouraging from afar what was going on, and it took them a year essentially to say, I, I guess. I think I, yeah. I I think I misread this thing, you know. Um, if if, yeah. if if we if I and we did it, when I said to them this is going too far back then, they said you know you don't know what you're talking about you don't understand this is reality. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Now yeah. go, oh I, I think this is going too far. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, part of that gaslighting stuff that we were talking we were talking about earlier about the flag and you know anti-Americanism. Uh, and how, you know, Trump has somehow stolen the flag, but in fact, it's liberals who have thrown the flag away. Um, this gaslighting, ta- you know, we've talked about this before, you know, takes place in relation to critical race theory and this whole notion that like, nobody's saying blah, you know, no one is, you don't know what critical race theory is. There's, first of all, there's a conservatives don't know what critical race theory is which is to say, probably conservatives know better what critical race theory is than the people who say they conservatives don't know because you know your enemy and you actually read read the work and you know you don't like rely on the summaries provided by their apologists um and of course critical race theory is again intellectual mountebankery of the lowest and and most nauseating sort and i have been editing articles about 
the dangers posed by critical race theory since the early 1990s, uh, after Kimberly Crenshaw uh, sort of invented, sort of like uh, codified it, let's say, or sort of represented it at the, you know, in 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 her in the original iteration, there were articles about this in the very early numbers of the Weekly Standard, which I found co-founded in 1995. It's now 26 years later. I know more about critical race theory than you do, and you know what it is? A, it's garbage, and B, yes, it is. It is. It is this. Uh, theory that everybody is objectively everybody who is not black is objectively racist uh consciously or unconsciously purposefully or not purposefully and that uh and that uh that is the nature of our you know civilization as it stands and then i read these articles explaining to me that no this is not they're not trying to you know that the people who say don't want it taught in schools are saying they don't want civil rights taught in schools. And it's like, okay, you know what? Go, go for it. Go ahead. Like you're in the end, in some weird way, you're only gaslighting yourself. You're like you are reassuring yourself that your enemy or your antagonist is not to be taken seriously because we're the only people who are taking this really seriously. It's the it's the weird culture of corporate America that seems to think in some way or other that it can both remain itself and kind of take in this stuff and kind of subsume it and like add it to its bill of particulars and everything will be fine. This is a revolutionary, destructive revolutionary theory whose purpose is to upend all of the social relationships and all of the kind of rules of the road of American and, and, and Western society and it's not going to be subsumable. And so, you know, uh, if you walk around saying, oh, these right-wingers, they're, all they are is racist, and they're, only, they're not interested in this or that, the other thing, like, we're, you, don't know, you don't know what's coming for you. Like, maybe this stuff that Christine talked about, about the concerted efforts to write codify rules that say that you can't teach critical race theory in schools are not the right way to go about it. But they might be the right way to go about it outside of schools, including in private industries and things like that. And uh, I'll give you an example of this. I only, I, I'm not sure I paid attention to it. And it's not critical race theory based. It's more sort of like what critical race theory is a front for, which is affirmative action or, you know, quotas in favor of minorities and stuff like that. So you know that there was this $28 billion in. Uh, money uh, for the hospitality industry uh, that was in the stimulus bill or one of the bills, $28 billion. And um, so it turns out that uh, the way it was written or the way it was passed or something like that, privilege was given to uh, restaurants owned by women or people of color. Uh, This federal regulation, federal law, uh, and restaurateurs, white restaurateurs, sued on the very on the grounds that this was blatantly unconstitutional. That you cannot provide subventions from the federal government that are limited to one race or limited to one gender, or 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 that privilege one race or one gender over another. And the minute that they did this, uh, from what I read in this. The article on a in a in, in Abe's favorite one of Abe's favorite publications, Forty Two West, which is a New York free New York City publication. The article was about it's actually restaurateurs called West Forty Second. Excuse me, West Forty Second, yeah. which is a about uh, restaurateurs in Hell's Kitchen dealing with you know the de- how they can reopen after the pandemic and all of this. So a bunch of people just sued right away, saying this is blatantly unconstitutional, and immediately the program was thrown into chaos because of course it's indefensible. It's indefensible on its face. So the question is if the law says you have to privilege minorities and, 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 and businesses owned by women, uh, then can you spend the money because courts are going to find unconstitutional. So maybe you need to freeze the money or can you say as the regulator who has to spend the money, I really can't, enforce this this way so we're just going to give it to everybody or whoever applies or something like that um but this is the kind of thing that emerges from these 
theories and ideas, and then they run, and then ordinary rational people say, wait a minute, you can't pass a law that says that the federal government can only give money to black people. It is no different from saying the federal government can only give money to white people, no matter what critical race theory says. That is the not black, the, the black farmer. There was a black farmers carve out too in some recent uh, recovery right. legislation, and that also was challenged by white farmers and and stopped by a federal judge. So say that it, this stuff is this is what he this is what the Biden administration means by equity. By the way, that's another one of those words that you know equity means outcomes. So if the outcomes aren't what they think it should be, then we have to carve out special protections based on race or based on gender, which are unconstitutional. So guys, uh, let me talk to you about Bolin brand sheets. Uh, Very proud of this advertiser because the sheets are so nice and so comfortable and so good looking and so luxurious. Uh, Bolin branch knows high quality sleep doesn't stop at your mattress. It's ultra soft organic sheets are transparently sourced and produced in safe, fair conditions. You'll feel a difference. Uh, Buttery soft, lightweight, and a 100% organic cotton sateen wave that's perfect for all seasons. Comes in a variety of colors and in all sizes from twin up to California king. Uh, Made to a higher standard with toxin-free processes and fair trade certification. Founded to give more sleepers more choices for high-quality sheets at a fair price. Founded by husband and wife Scott and Missy Tannen. Continuously building a fairer and better supply chain for the improvement of the entire future textile industry. Bowen Branch partners with family-owned businesses that align with their values and standards. They're pledging to double U.S. assembly jobs this year. To experience the best sheets you've ever felt, choose Bowen Branch. You can try them worry three for 30 nights with free shipping and returns. And our listeners get a, an exclusive 15% off their first set of sheets with promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L, and branch.com, promo code commentary. So uh, we got to go. Did you guys do anything fun? Wait, wait, the- wait, oh, wait. Noah, yeah. will, Noah will kill us if we don't briefly mention Fauci's mask reversal. Oh. Well, here's the problem with Fauci. So Fauci said, yeah, people may have to wear masks again because of the highly contagious Delta variant. As we know, you can only say high, you can, you can't say Delta variant. You have to say highly contagious Delta variant, which apparently isn't that highly contagious if you're vaccinated, which is the key point here. Uh, so he's like, yeah, everyone's gonna have to wear masks again. Maybe. Right. Um, so, at the same time, he's saying that 99.2% of all fatalities uh, in America in the last six months or something like that uh, are, among five, the, I think. are among the unvaccinated, which raises the interesting question, why do I have to wear a mask? And the answer is, I don't. Uh, and uh, he's an 80-year-old man. He should shut the hell up already. Seriously, like, what what good is he doing? What good is he doing his own argument, the cause of public health? One doesn't even know what it is that he's trying to say now. It's, it's, all, it's all sort of ended up in this kind of bizarre argle-bargle because what they need to do is convince the unvaccinated in unvaccinated places to vaccinate, and they're not listening to him, and they've had a year and a half to listen to him, and they're not listening to him. So he should stop talking and they should try to figure out who will listen, who they might listen to, if they'll listen to anybody, and they probably won't listen to anybody. I will tell you, my, my mayor, Meryl Bowser, who whom our listeners know I am no fan of, uh, dragged Fauci around all the wards in D.C. that have very low vaccination rates, thinking he would be this big draw. And so people sort of came out and they're like, oh, yeah, I've seen that guy on TV. Still not not effective. Like the vaccination rates, particularly among teenagers and high schoolers and young people in those wards, is still terribly low. So uh, the message is not reaching the people who it needs to reach. And I do commend, I commend Biden for saying, you know, getting vaccinated is a patriotic duty. Like he, he made that point very clearly in his 4th of July message. I think that was an important thing to say. I don't even know if that's a good message. Like by by now, you know, who is he yelling at? Like, who's going to listen to him? You know, if their concern is that there are low, there are low vaccination rates in uh, minority communities and in rural communities, you've got Trump voters and not Trump voters. And again, I don't know where this is going to go because it's not like they don't know that the vaccines are there or that, uh, that according to elite opinion, they should get vaccinated. 
They know perfectly well that that is what Fauci and Biden and everybody else thinks and that we, we think or, you know, whatever editorial pages think and all of that. And they've made up their minds. They're not going to do it. So, well, you know, I think the better message should be from the elite opinion makers and, and technocrats is to say, well, you're going to get left behind in the sense of we're not shutting down society for you again. Like this is schools will reopen. Masks will not be required. But they don't want society shut down. Those people mostly right. have lived. The people we're talking about have mostly lived without reference to the lock. I mean, everyone has lived in reference to the lockdowns because of, you know, economic dislocations and various other things but you know if you're if you if you live in rural america your life is not much affected by uh well see here in dc okay. that the people who but refuse not, vaccination in, yes right no in dc it's it's the 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 in minority communities that refuse vaccination they're going to want to keep the schools virtual next year like that's the new thing it's like we don't feel safe but we don't want to get vaccinated but the entire school system should cater to our fears so that's the part where political they? leadership will be tested once again I mean, I don't know. I'm not even, who even know? I don't even know that they're just glomming on to the teachers union's message. I mean, if you're a member of a minority community, you're not getting vaccinated. You want schools, you want your kids to stay at home for another year. Maybe you do. A lot of them probably don't. I don't know. I mean, it's, this is a very, this is a, we have, we attempted something that's never been attempted before, which is kind of like a mass vaccination of adults. And it turns out, you know, some ways when it's probably gone pretty well, you know, it's like they're going to, they're going to get like close to 70% of people over the age of 18. People under the age of 18 are not really at much risk of, of getting COVID or even of transmitting COVID. Um, so now what? I mean, really, Anthony Fauci is going to go on TV and tell double vaccinated people in, you know, on who watch Meet the Press that they need to wear masks again? No, it'd be more helpful if the FDA actually officially approved one of the vaccines like Pfizer and then institutions could make it compulsory like they do for other forms of vaccination. And that would actually make it because the it's only authorized still for emergency use, which means it cannot be mandated for right. school children and others. And I think getting that approval, the FDA stamp of approval on a vaccine, uh, ideally Pfizer, Moderna, both, mm-hmm. then you can say, okay, teachers, you, you have to be vaccinated to return to your job. Okay, soldiers, okay, hospital. I mean, obviously, the hosp- even a lot of hospital workers aren't fully vaccinated. And school children for the approved ages must be vaccinated. We do that already for every other vaccine and we could but, make normalize the vaccine in that way. No, I mean, it would be nice. I agree. But, but it creates a whole new problem, which is that all the, the sort of right-wing anti-vaxxers on this thing we'll will say, see, they, they, we told you they were going to make it compulsory. This is how they're doing. <laughs> Look what they're doing. It's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, I got no problem making it compulsory as we all know, because if you don't get the vaccine, you're an idiot. And I'm saying it, I'm going to say it every day. You can write me every letter you want to about how you're not an idiot and your wife is immunocompromised and your, and your, and your kid isn't going to get it. So it's all been, it's only been approved for emergency use and all that. And I'm going to tell you right now, you are an idiot. You're a moral. If you're not stupid, you're a moral idiot and you are, and you are behaving like a lunatic and a stupid person. And I have contempt for you. I don't want to end on that note. It's very, it's very, very, it's very on brand though. (laughs) Yeah, it's very on brand, but I'm just going to say, my point is that I get every day we get letters. It's like, we love you. I love your podcast. I just want to explain why it offends me when you say, get back, you know, take a, take off the mat or, or people say, no, I have to keep on my mask, whatever. It's like, get vaccinated, take off the mask. That's what you should do. Because that's what a normal sane person does, and you should basically live like a normal sane person. And if, by the way, if you have special circumstances under which you either can't possibly get vaccinated or you have to wear a mask forever, fine. But that is the definition of a special circumstance uh, for which you get a moral carve out and you live out, you do things the way you want to do things, and everybody else doesn't have to bend to you. That's how that works. Um, but, uh, but I mean, honestly, we get really, really wonderful, literate, amazing letters every day from people who are protesting, uh, this, um, 
this very vulgar expression of opinion on my part. And I'm really grateful that you listen. I'm really grateful that you like the podcast. But if you don't get vaccinated, you're an idiot. And you know what? If you don't get your kids vaccinated, you're an idiot. And if you don't get your wife vaccinated, you're an idiot. And if you don't get your parents vaccinated, you're an idiot. And that's all there is. It's just, it's, it, there's no uh, ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, there, you know, I, I don't know. There have been um, two, 300 some odd million vaccinations in the United States, vaccination shots in the United States. And nobody is dying from getting the vaccination shot. My presumption was when we started talking about the vaccine last year that the crisis was going to come when we started seeing deaths from vaccinations. Now, this weird population of highly literate anti-vaxxers who pretend not to be anti-vaxxers will say, how do we know they're suppressing the numbers or they're saying blah, blah, blah. Maybe, uh, you know, I heard, you know, five people Five people in Rhode Island, you know, died of, from the vaccine. My sister's cousin's aunt told me and like that. And so everybody has some line about this, but it's really not the case. You know, we all know what happened. Like eight people out of 7 million got, you know, like their heart beat a little faster on the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And the entire vaccination program was thrown into turmoil for three weeks because the the the, F, the FDA responded to tiny data about something that was not a fatality, we would know if there were fatalities. Look, you know, well, you know we always talk about uh, uh, the the vanishing competency and how fewer and fewer things work in this country as they're supposed yeah. to. This is something that worked shockingly well. Embrace it. Dive into it. It was developed in record time. It's unbelievably safe and wildly effective this works go for it (laughs) yay (laughs) we'll be back tomorrow uh hope noah's having a good time uh he'll be out for the rest of the week uh abe and christine are here with me john pot keep the candle burning